This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. In June, Libro FM is launching their Kids Club and YA Club, which will offer select audiobooks priced under $10 each, as well as their Summer Listening Challenge. Each person to finish will get a free audiobook credit and change and a chance to win free audiobooks for a year if you complete the challenge extra credit. Listeners of the podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code BR3. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow writer Alice Burton. We're recording this week's episode pretty early on Monday, June 17th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Uh, I'm fantastic. How are you, Kim? I am pretty good. Pretty good. It's, uh, it's a Monday, you know. It's weird that we're, we're recording on a Monday. <laughs> I am struggling to finish my book club book for tomorrow, uh, which I will talk about at the end of the podcast <laughs> during our <laughs> reading now. But uh, yeah, do you have any do you have any follow up for this week? Uh, I don't have any follow up, but I do have an article that I found um, that I want to just talk about briefly that we'll link to in the show notes because I think it is relevant to our interests, but also the interests of people who listen to this podcast. Uh, and it is a Washington Post article called "Book, si- book Subtitles Are Getting Ridiculously Long: What Is Going On." Indeed, what is going on? And so it is an article that goes through a bunch of fun, really long book subtitles and basically asks, like, why is publishing doing this? And the answer the article posits is both that there's a marketing reason that you can tell people a lot of things about a book by a funny subtitle, uh, but also that if you have long subtitles, you can pack in keywords and search terms so that in theory, books will show up in searches better and more easily, um, which is fascinating. Also, algorithms are ridiculous and running our lives. And apparently, they're also dictating the subtitles of our books to some degree. And then it goes on to uh, talk a little bit about how sometimes subtitles are also jokes between authors and readers and authors and their editors. And um, But that the algorithms are part of the reason we're starting to see so many long subtitles, which I thought was, I thought that was interesting. I mean, that is interesting, Kim. Um, I also, I bet that fiction is super jealous that it can't use as many awesome subtitles as nonfiction. Well, right? Yeah. Like all the time you see like blah, 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 a novel. That's so boring. It's so boring. Yeah. It just doesn't tell you anything. I mean, sure. They, they might generally sell a lot more and a lot more readers are interested in reading them. 
But this is the one area where I really feel that nonfiction triumphs. That's all I'm saying. Not that it's a competition. (laughs) Well, like across sales, like nonfiction actually does super well, but it's in like book culture and discussion that nonfiction, I think, doesn't always get its due, right? Because it's more fun to talk about like the big literary fiction title. Uh, But yeah. It's interesting. So nonfiction subtitles, uh, we'll link the article in the show notes, and I'm curious to hear kind of what other people think, because I thought it was an interesting point. What a great way to jump off the podcast. <laughs> um, That's a phrase, right? Jump off. Okay. So our <laughs> first sponsor for this episode is uh, Amazon Publishing. And this summer, Amazon Publishing is helping to kickstart your summer reading list with a $3 credit towards select Kindle books from now until June 30th. So get ready for some sun fun and the discovery of your next favorite book. Don't miss out at amazon.com slash summer reads. There are two nonfiction titles that are eligible for the offer. I mean, there are more than two, but like here are two samples. One is The Dark Heart, A True Story of Greed, Murder, and An Unlikely Investigator, which like I'm sold already. Me too. Right? Yeah. And then the other one is You've Been So Lucky Already, a memoir. We love memoirs on this podcast and true crime. (laughs) So again, check out amazon.com slash summer reads. Excellent. Thank you for sponsoring. All right. So we will hop into the main uh, part of the podcast by starting out as we normally do with new books. So these are books coming out within the couple of weeks before or after the podcast is uh, publishing that we have read and are excited about or just excited about because we think they sound interesting. So Alice will kick it off with one that I am super excited to hear about. Oh, yeah. So uh, my first pick for this week is For the Love of Books, Stories of Literary Lives, Banned Books, Author Feuds, Extraordinary Characters, and More by Graham Tarrant. It's out June 18th from Skyhorse. Speaking of subtitles, like, that's a good one. Um, So basically, they, they in the description of the book, they posit these questions, which are, of course, answered within the book itself. So like, which famous author died of caffeine poisoning and why Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was banned in China? Uh, What was the other one that was cool? What superstitions Truman Capote kept whenever he wrote? So it's basically this book about books, which people who like books always love. I mean, you know, I do. So it gives you a lot of like fun facts. It um, sort of starts, you know, like how did the book begin and like, you know, what were people writing on in ancient times and all this kind of stuff. And it brings you forward um, through time. I will give you two of the answers to these questions because I think they're really fun. Well, one is sad, but Balzac is the Honoré de Balzac, this French author in the 19th century. He is the one who died of caffeine poisoning. Articles about him say that he was drinking 50 cups of coffee a day, which like- Oh my God. Oh my God. I don't even know. I don't know how he did it. That's horrifying. I mean, he didn't do it. He died. Anyway, (laughs) so the other one, why Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was banned in China is because, quote, animals should not use human language. They didn't like it. So they were like, (laughs) none of that. Um, Look, it's a different culture. I don't know. Maybe that's like a problem, which uh, I respect, although I was partially named after Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. So I'm a little offended. I was going to I was going to ask you about that, actually. Yeah, yeah. My mom just really loved it. I also had relatives named that, but I feel like that was an excuse. Um, So essentially, if you are interested in fun facts and stories and uh, things about authors, and like, you know, you are because you're listening to this podcast, then check out For the Love of Books, Stories of Literary Lives, Banned Books, Author Feuds, Extraordinary Characters, and more out June 18th. Excellent. That one sounds so fun. I love books about books and stuff like that. That sounds good. 
All right. So my first pick is a book that is uh, super nerdy and falls very much into the like, I really want to understand how stuff works, the weirder, the better. Uh, And so the book is called The Weather Machine, A Journey Inside the Forecast by Andrew Bloom. And it is a lively and surprising tour of the infrastructure behind weather forecasting. Uh, So it is about the people who built that infrastructure and then what the, the infrastructure of weather forecasting tells us about our planet and climate. And it is, uh, it is so good so far. Um, so Andrew Bloom is a, a journalist, and he, he wrote a previous book called Tube, A Journey to the Center of the Internet, which was basically a look at all of the stuff that makes the internet work. So I don't even know. I haven't read the book, but how the internet functions is in that book. And so this book, The Weathered Machine, is basically that same thing except for the weather forecast. So um, he starts with kind of a history of weather forecasting um, and how like the um, invention of the telegraph really helped weather forecasting take off because people could finally send data to each other really quickly. And then you were able to kind of compare that and um, look at it. He looks at how um, World War II and other global tensions impacted our ability to do a global forecast because really like weather forecasting is not isolated in one place. You, you have to have data from all sorts of different places. And so as he's doing the book, he he goes to visit these old weather stations. Um, apparently Norway is one of the countries that is like a leading expert in weather forecasting. And it's because they had some of the first weather forecasting infrastructure put in place, including all these weather spotters along the coast. Um, and so he goes to visit some of those weather stations and meets the people who actually like kind of check in on them now. Um, he looks at how human observers contribute to weather forecasting um, and then at how like global satellites and space images are used to help with the forecast and help build our whole apparatus that helps us do that. So um, it's just like so it's so curious and interesting. Um, uh, and he also talks a little bit about how kind of fragile the whole infrastructure actually is because it depends on so many different people and so many countries and so many organizations all working together. There's actually like an entire sub thing of the UN specifically devoted to keeping weather forecasting stuff together and getting it started to helped launch it. And then I think still helps keep it together. So it's just like, I don't know. I love books that like dig into like how a thing works and like super nitty gritty detail. And that's exactly what this one is doing. Um, I flew through like half of it in a long reading session one morning because I was just like, boy, this is so full of like nerd facts. I love it. So that is uh, The Weather Machine, A Journey Inside the Forecast by Andrew Bloom. So my main question about this is, does he talk at all about the real story behind the movie Twister? I don't know. I haven't gotten that far yet. Okay, that's like that would be the main thing that I would be interested in from this book. This truth, the true story behind Twister. Okay, I will make a note to, yeah. to finish it and tell you. Thank you so much. I want to know if Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton's characters are real and if they got back together <laughs> in real life. <laughs> I love that movie so much. It's so good. Okay, anyway. So good. Let's just turn this into a Twister podcast. We'll just examine. Just, that'll be our, our side podcast. It'll be a Twister podcast. Oh, my gosh. Okay, anyway. Sorry. We're just coming up with amazing ideas today on this Monday. <laughs> All right. My next book is A Death in the Rainforest, How a Language and a Way of Life Came to an End in Papua New Guinea by Don Kulik. It's out June 18th from Algonquin. Um, side note about this book. I don't know how to pronounce technically 
some of the names of things. And I really tried to find out. Um, I tried to find out if the author was on Twitter so that I could ask him if he could tell me. And he appears to not be unless he's going under some alias. So I'm just going to say these confidently and then just don't actually trust that this is how they're said. <laughs> Essentially, uh, so Don Kulik is this anthropologist and he was very interested in how a language dies. And he wanted to sort of go to a place where it was in the process of dying and then exam- like see how that happened. And so he goes to this tiny village of Gapun in New Guinea to sort of, um, and it's this, like very, very tiny. Like you have to go through these, um, I think it's like mangrove swamp. And then you, it's it's like a little pocket inside this rainforest. And to this, uh, in order to examine the death of their language, um, Tayep. So he comes up, he comes up and he like comes friends with the people when he's like this young student. And then uh, he comes back like over a series of 30 years to just sort of see what's going on with the language. Because when he arrives, the older people speak the language, but a lot of them are speaking like the official language now of Papua New Guinea. And their children can understand the language, like their heritage speakers, they understand the language, but they themselves don't really speak it. Like their main language is like the sort of, again, official language happening. So he wanted to document this. So he goes in and he he talks about – it's really interesting because he talks about anthropology and like how the field has changed. He's really salty about Margaret Mead at the beginning, which I really enjoy when people in really specialized fields are like salty about their comrades because <laughs> um, it just seems super nerdy. But then you also get to learn about this whole culture that um, if you are like me, you don't know that much about. I mean, like in general with Papua New Guinea, I didn't have a lot of facts because I am bad at geography and uh, apparently anthropology. So this is why I read (laughs) about anthropology. If you are interested in how a language passes out of this world and what is being done to document things like that, and also again, the field of anthropology, which is cool, but also um, fraught with controversy, then Check out A Death in the Rainforest, How a Language and a Way of Life Came to an End in Papua New Guinea by Don Kulik. That's funny. I do like when people get salty about other people in their profession, especially like when they're, especially when like I have no idea who any of these people are. Like I just, it's like you're getting in on some gossip that you don't really understand, but it feels good to like be in on it anyway, you know? Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. That sounds really good. Um, my second book is uh, from earlier in June. came out June 11th from Viking and it's called More Than Enough, Claiming Space for Who You Are No Matter What They Say by Elaine Welteroff. Um, and I actually haven't gotten to read this one at all, but I did get to read an excerpt from the book that was published on Zora, which is a sub-site, a magazine on Medium that I really, really liked. And so that's why I feel good about recommending it or suggesting this book. So um, More Than Enough is a memoir by uh, the former editor of Teen Vogue, and it is about her rise through journalism and her position as a barrier breaker across the many intersections of identity. Um, So she uh, became the editor of Teen Vogue after the 2016 election, I believe, right when Teen Vogue was just like being super awesome and just like going after or like being part of the Me Too movement and just doing all these really cool political things to uh, to support and inspire and do great things for teen girls. And so she was a person who was leading that. So um, in the book, she uh, unpacks lessons on race and identity and excess, um, talking about her kind of childhood in California to finding herself on the front lines of a movement for change makers. Um, And she's actually only 32 years old, which just makes me feel like I have done 
nothing with my entire life. Um, but sometimes I guess it's nice to be inspired by people who are doing a lot of good things really young. Because man, it's cool. So um, in the Zora excerpt that I read, she tells a story about going into an executive meeting uh, at the magazine and um, shortly after she was promoted to editor uh, and not being recognized. So everyone in the meeting was like waiting and she kind of says like, oh, what are we waiting for to start this meeting? And they're like, oh, we're waiting for the editor in chief. And she's like, ah, well, yes, that's me. So let's go. Um, And just like the way she kind of told that story was super engaging because she was, she uses that as a lesson to kind of talk about people underestimating you and how her perception as a young black woman was taken in that meeting. But um, also some really like perceptive and interesting things to say about what that means for um, kind of pushing against in, uh, ingrained systems of power and stuff like that. So um, it's just, it was a really interesting excerpt. I'll, we'll link that in the show notes as well. But I think this is going to be just like a really interesting book about a woman in a profession that I personally am interested in, but also who is making a difference and making change for, um, you know, people of different genders and ethnicities and all of that. So uh, the book is More Than Enough, Claiming Space for Who You Are No Matter What They Say by Elaine Welteroth. I remember when everyone was super like confused that Teen Vogue was being <laughs> really yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when that yeah, thing started yeah. coming out, everyone was like, wait, the dictionary is being political and Teen Vogue is doing like <laughs> amazing journalism. What's happening? Yeah, they were doing some really, really cool articles. And so she's the reason that that was happening. So that it makes me super interested to just learn about that. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, in a vaguely similar vein, uh, I have another book by a cool woman um, who is trying to change the system. So this, although this is the, the television system, if you will. Um, so this is I Like to Watch, Arguing My Way Through the TV Revolution by Emily Nussbaum, out June 25th from Random House. Um, Emily Nussbaum has, of course, written uh, Pulitzer Prize winning columns for The New Yorker. And in this, she argues for this new way of looking at TV. She talks about like sort of from her beginnings of watching TV and how people, um, mostly men, were criticizing it, you know, calling it like it goes back to this origin of like the idiot box. Right. Um, And just how it's your it's this lowest medium uh, or of like entertainment is watching TV. And like, you know, actors would be like if they were on television, then they've lost all prestige. I think there was a joke about that on 30 Rock, actually. Um, And so she talks about how she started looking at it differently when she got really interested in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I think um, kind of launched a lot of sort of feminist critical ships, if you will. Um, So she then just like talks about uh, how television has evolved, how she's like um, trying to change the way that we criticize it and Um, Meaning, of course, in just a general way, not like a negative way. And uh, talks about how to, um, they call it toppling the status anxiety that has long haunted the, again, quote, idiot box. Um, And so making it basically this thing where we acknowledge that TV can be extremely good and extremely helpful and creative and amazing. And so she talks about trying to create this new kind of criticism that doesn't um, elevate one kind of culture, which, you know, like everyone talks about how amazing The Wire is, but there's usually a problem with creating that kind of prestige for something like, I don't know, Parks and Rec, because it's like, oh, that's funny. And it's like heartwarming. So obviously something that's like gritty and violent is better. And she says that is false, which I really enjoy. So um, 
Again, she also goes into uh, profiles of television showrunners like Kenya Barris and Genji Kohan and Ryan Murphy. And just like it's like this awesome series of essays about um, television. So if you love television <laughs> and you like smart women, uh, read I Like to Watch, Arguing My Way Through the TV Revolution. That sounds really excellent. And I like what you said about that. Um, the way we prioritize like what is good is often not the things that are funny and heartwarming and that that we give a lot of weight to uh, violent men, uh, especially on TV. I'm, run, I'm having trouble with my words, but yeah, I like that. You're doing a great job. Oh, you know what I actually, what I think might be a, a show that's changing that a little bit is um, The Good Place. Oh my God, I love that show. It got so much acclaim and it's very, very funny, but also just it, like almost inarguably great. <sighs> Oh my gosh, it's it's the best. We should do a good I would do a good place podcast, except uh I don't even have anything smart to say about it. It's just amazing. But yeah, I think <laughs> you're totally right. <laughs> All right. So that is uh that is it for new books this week. So I'm gonna do our second sponsor. Uh, so uh, our second sponsor is Book Riot Insiders, uh, which have you tried it? Uh, if not, your time is now. Book Riot Insiders are a resource especially designed for fellow book nerds, and you can try it for free for two weeks. There are different levels available, so you can decide which perks you want from a monthly behind-the-scenes newsletter to exclusive podcasts and giveaways. And speaking of perks, we've got a new release index curated by resident Velocity reader Liberty Hardy, so you can see the most exciting new books coming up in the next few months. Check it out and sign up for your 14-day free trial at insiders.bookriot.com. Uh, and as someone who uh, uses Insiders, I can tell you that the new release index is amazing and it is such a cool, cool thing to have because it is really hard to sometimes find out when new books are coming out. So I use it all the time. Uh, and so with that, we will switch gears into our kind of month, our topical theme for the week. And so we decided, uh, we discovered that June is National Ocean Month, uh, which I did not know until we were fishing around, ha ha ha, for podcast topics. <laughs> <laughs> Just came up with that on the top of my head. All right. So um, from the so I, I looked up, I was trying to find some information about National Oceans Month. And apparently, here's some ocean facts for you. Uh, the ocean produces over half of the world's oxygen and absorbs 50 times more carbon dioxide than the atmosphere. And the oceans cover 70% of the Earth's surface, uh, which means it transports heat from the equator to the poles, which helps regulate our climate and weather patterns. And also, 76% of all U.S. trade involves some form of marine transportation. So oceans are very important, and it is Oceans Month, which is cool. So we have books about oceans. Um, and so my first book is uh, an animal book. It is Spineless, The Science of Jellyfish and the Art of Growing a Backbone by Ju Julie Burwald. And so this is a look at the world of jellyfish. Uh, and so jellyfish have been around for half a billion years. Um, I think the book jacket said like longer than almost any other animal on the planet. But they are almost entirely made of water. And so sometimes like they're in the ocean, but you can't even see them because they're just basically water. Um, and studying ancient jellyfish is particularly hard because they like they don't fossilize particularly well. And so it's really hard to find information about jellyfish back in the fossil record that scientists can study. So for those reasons, like for a long time, jellyfish have basically been ignored. Um, it was hard and there just didn't like seem to be that much to learn about them. But it turns out that jellyfish actually are super fascinating and there are a lot of interesting things you can learn about them. Um, and particularly one of the reasons jellyfish are kind of a big deal now is that they are 
massively growing. And so these big blooms of jellyfish, they have caused a ton of problems. They clog power plants. They have ruined fisheries. um, They've caused damage all over the place. And so like science is trying to figure out what do we do with all of these jellyfish? Like what, why is this happening and what can we do about it and what can we learn about them? So uh, the book is one of those books where the the writer kind of takes you along on their journey of reporting, um, which I'm not totally convinced is necessary for the way, like what she, the story she's trying to tell. I don't know that her like process of reporting is so interesting that I need it in the book, but I'm kind of going along on the, the ride with her. Um, and so as she's doing it, she looks she travels the globe to meet biologists. She goes on some fishing boats to see giant jellyfish in the ocean. She um, buys jellyfish and um, cooks it to eat to see what that is like um, and just really tries to um, understand like jellyfish from kind of every angle that you can. So um, it's really uh, it's a fun mix of memoir and science writing, which is something I love. And kind of I think it's going to end up being about how she sort of finds herself and kind of finds some of her own uh, interest and in science through the reporting of this book, learning about jellyfish. So uh, it's really fun and you know, something I just, I didn't really know anything about and I didn't know I wanted to know about until I started reading. And then I thought, yes, I definitely want to read a whole book about jellyfish. So that is Spineless, The Science of Jellyfish and the Art of Growing a Backbone by Julie Burwald. Um, Jellyfish stung my mom on her honeymoon, so Whoa. I'm mad at them for forever. <laughs> <laughs> but this book sounds good. <laughs> well, fair, fair enough. That's That's fair. That's fair. I'm just saying, I'm holding a grudge for, against them for quite some time. Uh, okay, so my first ocean book is uh, The Bounty, The True Story of the Mutiny, Mutiny on the Bounty by Caroline Alexander. Uh, if you do not know the story of Mutiny on the Bounty, this is a uh, boat story, if you will. Um, this was essentially, there is a sailing ship called The Bounty, and in, let me see what year, 1789. Oh, that's the year of the French Revolution. In 1789, Captain Bly was uh, sailing to Tahiti to ostensibly get breadfruit with his crew. There was a mutiny done by Christian Fletcher, who uh, I believe was the first mate. And they put Captain Bly on a small little ship with some other people. And they were like, you're on your own. And he sailed 3,500 nautical miles in order to reach this, I think he reached some islands north of Australia. Um, But he did that in like this little boat by himself, pretty much. There might have been some other people, but he navigated it. Anyway, point being, this story has been made into a lot of movies and there was a book and all this stuff. And so it's kind of part of our culture. But in the Caroline Alexander book, she says that this has sort of been obscured by legend. And so she goes into um, the actual like myths surrounding the story and what the actual story is. And she does it by like creating these really vivid characters and doing like the kind of storytelling that can be done so well in nonfiction <laughs> sometimes. And uh, she shows you how um, it's okay. It says in the description that in a desperate attempt to save one man from the gallows, and another from obscurity, two powerful families came together and began to create the version of history we know today. And uh, she talks about the assassination of a brave man's honor at the dawn of the Romantic Age, which, first of all, is a wonderful phrase. And secondly, I'm assuming they're talking about Captain Bly. I haven't read this book, but it sounds great. So Captain Bly, if his honor has been, or a reputation has been like assassinated, then uh, I think we owe it to him to read this book, unless he was, <laughs> in fact, as terrible as history has made him out until this book. So in order to find out, read The Bounty, The True Story of the Mutiny on the Bounty by Caroline Alexander. 
Sounds like a fun one. Excellent recommendation. My second pick is also a uh, a boat book. <laughs> I guess <laughs> if we're calling them that. Um, we are. Okay, it is a boat book, and it's called Fisherman's Blues, A West African Community at Sea by Anna Bodkin. Uh, And this is a book about the fishermen from the port of Jol in Senegal, where fishing used to be kind of a main driver of the economy, but due to a lot of different forces, there are now very little fish there, and um, the villagers there, uh, the communities there are really struggling. And so Anabakin uh, went there, spent a lot of time there going out. Um, she just like immerses herself in this village. So she goes out in boats and goes fishing. She talks to community members, people who like fish and people who don't, people whose livelihoods are dependent on the fishing economy and people who are kind of managed to stay separate from it um, to try and see what it is like to be in a place that is having to change and having to adapt to these forces that are just like well beyond what any of the people there can really push back against um, and the ways that they are still trying to kind of maintain their culture and community. Um, so the the forces, primarily the forces at work are overfishing. Um, so these fishermen go out on these handmade boats and try to fish and they're kind of competing against industrial fishing machinery and boats and all of that. Um, who are both overfishing and then taking fish um, outside of the cycle in which they're supposed to. And so they're taking young fish and then those fish don't have a chance to grow up. And so it's kind of over time decimating the fishing system or the the ocean um, ecology there. And then also climate change and how climate change is affecting the, the fish and the fishermen. And so she, um, the author is a journalist who's reported in Africa and the Middle East for decades. Um, she's written numerous books, um, but this is her first book, as I understand it, that is about a community that's specifically dependent on the ocean. And as I've been reading it, it's just, it's so beautifully written. Um, And it is very, very hyper-focused on this village and the stories of the people who live there. Um, And so she doesn't do a ton of pulling out to kind of give too much context. So the information about climate change and overfishing are sort of implied or kind of subtly woven into the story, but it really is trying to kind of capture a portrait of this place and a snapshot of this way of life that I find is really, really fascinating. Um, And kind of the, the ways that superstition and myth and storytelling play into the way that the, the community responds to the challenges it's facing. Um, and so, yeah, I just think the writing is really beautiful. It's it's a good story. She's a really good storyteller. And so I appreciate it as a, a snapshot of a place uh, that is really dependent on the ocean for their livelihood and culture. Um, so, uh, yeah, that is uh, Fisherman's Blues, A West African Community at Sea by Anna Bodkin. Why can't we just leave the ocean alone? You know? You know. Good question. I don't know. I just feel bad for it. I know it covers, like, again, like 70% of the globe. Um, I don't know. We could just sit there and look at it. <laughs> we don't need to do anything with Sorry, it's Monday. You know, we're recording late at night. This is the kind of stuff you get. Okay. My next pick is Poseidon's Steed, the story of seahorses from myth to reality by Helen Scales. I was delighted by this title. Um, who doesn't love seahorses? I feel like everyone does because they're so weird looking. They look like horses, but they're fish. Anyway, so <laughs> Helen, <laughs> Helen Scales is a marine biologist. Um, She takes you in this book 
from uh, coral reefs, uh, coral reefs. Why are they not reefs? Coral reefs and seagrass meadows of Indonesia, um, where a lot of seahorses will uh, live, to the back streets of Hong Kong, where a thriving black market seahorse trade is concealed. Which, um, again, let's leave the oceans alone. So essentially, it, it takes you back to um, six thousand years ago. There are it says seahorse imaginings, but like you know, like paintings of seahorses on cave walls in Australia. Which, by the way, if you have not looked up Australia. Australian cave art. It's amazing. So yeah, so we have 6,000 years ago, the ancient Greeks called the seahorse the hippocampus, which is half horse, half fish. But um, again, Helen Scales is a marine biologist, and she shows in the book that seahorses are indeed fish, even though uh, their anatomy has been very puzzling to many scientists for a long time. I know that the main thing everyone knows, right, is that the male seahorse gives birth uh, because what, like the female has like the eggs or something, and then she gives them to the male seahorse. I think that's how it goes. And then he like gives birth to them. Kim, I'm just checking with you on this. I have, I have no idea. I don't know. Let's assume that that's how it goes. So this just goes through all of the ways that we see seahorses, what the actual story is about them. They're very secretive. They live on the seafloor. You basically never see them in the wild. It's really hard to. So if you've seen them live, you've probably seen them in, like, in an aquarium. So if you want more information on these beautiful sea creatures, then read Poseidon's Steed, The Story of Seahorses from Myth to Reality by Helen Scales. I really do like that title, too. That's a good one. Um, it's just so like majestic, you know, it's got a lot of S's in it. It's what I was noticing. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So I have one more book to mention, which, um, I have not read and I didn't get to preview at all, but, um, uh, my friend Erin, who reads a ton of nature books and has a lot of, uh, recommendations, she particularly loves shipwreck books, which this is not one, but, um, if we ever do an episode of on shipwrecks or another one, maybe, uh, I will go to her for recommendations, but she reads a lot of books about the ocean. And so she suggested one that she really loved and it's called Hawakai, Hawakai Rising, Hokulea, Neo Thompson and the Hawaiian Renaissance by Dr. Sam Lowe. Uh, and so this is a book about a um, Polynesian explorers who navigated the globe without charts or instruments. They sailed against prevailing winds and currents around these uh, these double canoes to settle across the Pacific Ocean. Um, and they did this when most other places like couldn't even get away from the coast very much. And so um, this book is about, in 1975, a replica of one of those ancient Hawaiian canoes was launched, um, and they tried to sail the ancient star paths and help Hawaiians reclaim the pride in their ancestors. And so it is a story of Polynesian sailors, but then also um, this um, re this 1975 um attempt to recreate that and uh, bring that culture back. Um, and so Aaron really loved it and recommended it. So I wanted to just make sure to give that a mention. And so that is Hawake Rising, Hokulea, Neoa Thompson, and the Hawaiian Renaissance by Sam Lowe. That's awesome. That's like Moana. And also, yeah, yeah, like, you know, when they hold the hand up yeah. to the, yeah, mm-hmm. that's so cool. At the uh, American Museum of Natural History in New York, they have like a woven star chart thing which there's like a little um basically oval for where the boat is and then you like hold it up i think and it has like the kind of constellation layout for it's really amazing and i'm just astonished that pre just looking something up on a phone anyone was able to do anything so this is basically (laughs) just like an absolute miracle in my eyes (laughs) that's amazing great pick kim that was excellent great pick aaron that was aaron's suggestion not mine but i'm in 
I'm thinking it's going to be excellent. So, all right. So we are going to close out the podcast a little differently this week. Um, we thought since it is middle of June, it would be, a, I guess, near the end of June now, it would be a good time to revisit the reading goals that we set at the beginning of the year to see uh, how they are going. Uh, and spoiler alert, mine are going not well. So uh, that's excellent. <laughs> but I will pass it off to you first, Alice, and then I will talk about how embarrassed I am uh, after that. Oh, gosh. Um. Okay. So I'm not doing well with this, but I would like to say that I have started way too many other book group things, and that is precluding me from reading my original list. Okay. Anyway, so my first goal was to read three self-help books. Um, I, <laughs> I've checked out two from the library. Um, one was How to Break Up with Your Cell Phone, which I recommended on the podcast before. And a friend of mine is actually doing it and is talking about how hard it is. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds hard. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I know I need to do it. Another, another one has to do with digital minimalism. So there's obviously a theme here. I'm addicted to my phone. It's not good. Um, um, another goal is to finish Martin Chuzzlewit. I definitely have not done that. But I have read like 10 pages of it. So, but from the place where I was, so I'm like halfway through and it's a massive, massive book. So that's fine. And then uh, create a TBR to be read shelf of nine to 12 books I own and finish them all. I don't know. I haven't, I don't think I created that shelf. I've definitely read, <laughs> I've read some books. And then, oh, this one I'm actually slightly proud of. Shop at Barnes and Noble's website when possible. So I haven't done that per se. But I did join the Barnes and Noble like membership program, which is, you know, that encourages one to go in and actually shop there because you get 10% off all purchases. And it's $25 for the year. Everyone do it. Um, I felt actually really good when I did that. I was like, yes, I am trying to keep Barnes Noble in business. And did you see that they were bought out by uh, the the group that owns Waterstones in London? I did see that. Yeah, that is intriguing news. Yeah. I just want them to stay around. I went to Barnes and Nobles for every midnight release of Harry Potter and I just I just really want it to stay here, if only for that selfish reason. Yeah, agreed. So I am doing uh, not super well on the goals that I set. So um, the first one was to read 12 professional slash personal development books, um, which I I didn't check the list, but I feel like at best I have done two. Um, but I, I don't even know if I have done that. I did something about it. I just I'm super blocked about reading those. So I haven't. I have a whole stack sitting here just waiting and I, I haven't picked them up. So not not well on that one. Second goal was to read 40 books that are on my shelves right now. And I think at last count, I was at 12. I had read 12 books from my shelves. Um, but I, I guess I will say I have like started a bunch of them and then decided I didn't really want to actually read them. And I, I've either gotten rid of them or, you know, give them away or something like that. So I think I've maybe cleared more than that, but I really like books that I've started and finished, I think it's like 12. So I should be at like 20 by now. So that's not super great either. Um, but there we are. And then my third one was to uh, only buy books from bookstores, not buy them online. 
And I have been actually doing relatively well with that. I have done some Amazon purchases, um, some ebooks that were on sale, and then a few books that like my local Barnes and Noble just didn't, or local bookstores, Barnes and Noble, a couple independent bookstores just didn't have. Um, I did end up buying those on Amazon. But for the most part, I think I have done that. The thing I've been doing that feels a little like cheating, but really isn't, is that um, Barnes and Noble lets you buy books online and then pick them up in store. And I have done that a bunch of times, which I find extremely satisfying um, because you can like go in, put the book on hold, you pay for it, and then you just walk into the store and go up to the counter. And then you, um, you know, and you can do that at independent bookstores too. I just happen to do it at Barnes & Noble because it's really close to where I work. And that has been been satisfying. And also it's been good because then I don't wander Barnes & Noble like picking out other books to purchase. (laughs) So um, (laughs) that sounds so fun. I didn't know you could do that with uh, the Barnes & Noble site. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, and you can do that at indie bookstores too. Like I said, I just happen to do it at a Barnes and Noble because it's like a mile from the library where I work, oh. which is also full of books that I should just be checking them out. But it's fine; <laughs> I don't have a problem. But no, this is a good point. We don't only support Barnes and Noble on this podcast. We support all of your indie yes. bookstores. Please shop there. I forgot another thing that I'm just going to add to my goal list is I have to get rid of. Oh gosh, I think it's at least 150, maybe 200 books um, because I am moving in with my girlfriend and I have too many books. So I have gotten rid of 50 so far, which probably means I have another 150 to somehow cull from everything else. And I already did. I know. I did the easy like get rid of like 200 like two years ago. So all the easy ones to get Mm. rid of are gone. So now I have to just, oh gosh, I'm not looking forward. It's going to be fine. Oh, that sounds really rough. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Thank you so much. But I'm happy that you're moving in with Michelle. That's very exciting. It is. Anyway. (laughs) All right. Now we will actually close with the podcast as we normally do by talking about the books we're reading right now. Um, And so um, I'm actually kind of between books right now, but the one that I think I might pick up next is, um, so I've been watching Agent Carter, uh, which is um, the show about Peggy Carter that was on ABC for two seasons and then was unceremoniously and disappointingly canceled. Um, and it is wonderful. Um, and so now I want to read about Lady Spies. And so the book I'm thinking about picking up next is one that I think we talked about on the podcast a few episodes ago because it's new this year. Um, it's called A Woman of No Importance, The Untold Story of the American Spy Who Helped Win World War II. And that is exactly what it is about. It is about a lady spy, who a woman named Virginia Hall, who is a Baltimore socialite, who talked her way into the special operations executive, which is a spy organization that was Winston Churchill's um, Winston Churchill's spy organization. And she became the first allied woman deployed behind enemy lines. And she had a prosthetic leg and helped during the French Revolution. So um, yeah, Agent Carter has me psyched about women spies. And so I think A Woman of No Importance by Sonia Purnell might be my next read. Man, justice for Agent Carter. That's what I have to say. <sighs> So I'm not reading – okay, this isn't nonfiction, but I feel like I have to mention it because I literally have to finish it by tomorrow, so it is consuming my thoughts at the moment. It is <laughs> Exit West, which is probably a bestseller. I don't know. It's a well-known bit of fiction. Um, and mm-hmm. by – actually, my, my girlfriend is hosting – book club tomorrow. And so I extra have to finish it because otherwise it feels like an affront to our very relationship. Um, (laughs) I'm like halfway done. It's actually really good. I'm really enjoying it. There's like, it seems like there's a bit of a sci-fi twist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, you know. Okay. You know about it. Okay. Yeah. I read it for book club as well. Did you like it? I did. Yeah. It's good. It's pretty short. So I, I have hope of finishing it. Okay. 
Put your head down, you'll get it. Maybe. There's a lot of Supernatural I have to watch on Netflix. Okay, um, (laughs) with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And if you feel so inclined, please feel free to rate and review the uh, podcast on iTunes. Uh, It helps people find us more easily. And then while you are there, you can subscribe so that you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. And so with that, I am Kim Ukura. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. Mm -hmm.